Hola, you're listening to the Life in Paradise podcast. Have you ever wondered what it'd be like to live and work in the middle of a growing tourism town? Sounds great, right? Well, it doesn't come without challenges. Like most people listening, I had a steady job, lots of stress, worked my tail off, all so I could enjoy vacations. One day I came to the realization that I needed to embed myself into a vacation permanently. So that's what I did. Now my home is San Juan del Sur, Nicaragua. It's a small town on the Pacific coast with a population of around 15,000 people. I have a small sailboat charter business which pays the bills and leaves a little bit left over to cover my habits. I mean, hobbies. And even though we call it paradise, Nicaragua is still a third world country. So picture this, a 36-year-old Texas guy and his two trusty Labradors are transplanted into a developing country. These are the stories of what life is like. Some good, some bad, but all entertaining. If you get a chance, check out our website. It's nikasailandsurf at gmail.com or my blog at brandontheharper.blogspot.com. That's brandontheharper.blogspot.com. Also, if you still use the email, you can send us an email to nikasailandsurf at gmail.com. That's N-I-C-A, nikasailandsurf at gmail.com. So that's it for the boring stuff. Sit back, relax, and live vicariously through me for about the next 30 or 45 minutes. Let her rip, tater chip. episode I mentioned about going home to the States for a couple weeks. Uh, I didn't get to talk about what I go through when I come back to Nicaragua. So typically I'll go home and I'll, I'll have a bunch of boat parts and things for the boat that I've ordered and stored up waiting for me when I get there. And I like two or three weeks before it's time to go home, I just blow up Amazon and I sent it all to my mom's house and she had an extra bedroom and it looked like an Amazon shipping warehouse, just tons of boxes. So I've always like pushed the limits on how much to bring back. And normally about four or five suitcases is the most that I'll do. Uh, so this past time I came back, you know, it's, it's like $300 in overages is what I paid. I think I could, I checked two suitcases for free, but then I had to pay for the extra two, which was 300 bucks. So they're up to $150 a suitcase. And that's if you don't go over 50 pounds and if the measurements of all the dimensions of the bag aren't over a certain number of inches. I don't remember exactly what those inches are, but it's not that hard to go over. One time I, um, I brought down a sail for the boat, a brand new mainsail. I think it weighed 75, 80 pounds and it was a big bag that I had made for it so I could easily transport it. And I think it was $600 just for one bag. And I mean, it, it was big, but it was $600. I tried to buy a seat on the airplane and just a one-way ticket and put it on there, and they, they wouldn't let me do that. So if you're traveling with a bunch of crap down to Nicaragua, 
you're going to be ready to get busted because when you come through customs on the way out, every single bag gets run through a x-ray machine and they're not looking for drugs. Well, I'm sure they are a little bit, but they're mainly looking for things that they can tax you on. Since this country uh, doesn't have a lot of resources, well, they have resources, but they don't utilize them. So what they do is they just tax everything that comes in because 80% of everything that's here is brought from somewhere else. Kind of like a little island. Anyway, so they run them through the x-ray. And the last time I came down, the last time I came down, I had no issues at all. But what I figured out was there's these little guys that, that stand around the conveyor belt where you wait for your luggage. And they want to help you carry your bags in exchange for tips. And there's a ton of them. I, there's probably more of them than there are passengers. So the last time that I was coming down, I had both dogs that were going to be in crates and I had a carry on bag and I had five checked bags. So I was like, well, I guess now's the time to hire one of these guys to help me out. So I found a little dude and I talked to him a little bit and I pointed my bags as they came and I told him in Spanish, I said, Hey, I've got a bunch of random parts and stuff here that I don't want to have to pay taxes on. So do you know either of those baggage scanner people? And maybe we could just go in their line because there's two different lines. So you can pick the one you go in. He was like, yep, I know one of them. And we went through it and no problems at all. Because what they do is there's, um, there's a, a conveyor belt that runs it through an x-ray machine. And there's a lady or a guy sitting there looking at the screen. And as the bag comes out of the conveyor belt, out of the box, they hit the bag. And that means the bag needs to go get looked at. So the last time that I came down, I had four bags full of parts. He knew the lady, we went through, and she never said a thing. So it was great. So this time, I got off the plane, and I went to the baggage claim area, and I just started looking for the guy because I knew that I had a whole bunch more stuff, and he knew the right people. So I found him. I go up to him, and I tell him, hey, I've got four bags, you know, full of stuff. And he said, well, there's going to be a problem this time because the lady that's checking it is really stiff. Like, she doesn't let anything get by. So sure enough, we loaded the bags onto the belt. Every single one of them, as they came out, she smacked them on top, and that means go get them looked at. So you put them in a little buggy, you take them over to the customs area, and they're supposed to go through the bags one by one. Well, the typical thing that you do is, because what they want is they want to collect taxes on it. So they're opening the bags, you're going through, they're asking you, what is this, what is this, anything in wrappers or in packages, they want to see the invoices or the price on it. And so what you do is you say, well, you know, is it okay? Maybe I can just pay you the tax and, you know, uh, you can pay it. And they're like, okay, yeah, which normally the money goes in their pocket and they let you go. That's how it works. So this time the lady opened my first bag and she found a bunch of boat parts. And she's like, what is the value of all this stuff? And I said, oh, maybe $100, which is a lie because every bag probably had four or $500 worth of stuff in it. So she said, well, the official person who collects the money is gone for the day so we're gonna have to keep your bags overnight so I look at the little baggage helper guy and he looked at her and said to her in Spanish uh is there any way that we can you can help him out like he doesn't know all the rules and he has to get back to his house tonight and so she was like okay that's fine we can work something out but she wouldn't talk to me she would only talk to the little guy whose name turned out to be Ismail and so she asked him how much he asked me I said 50 bucks he told her 50 bucks and she said 60 back to him. And then he said 60 to me. I said, okay. I went to reach for my wallet and she put her hand out and he started shaking his head and he pointed with his eyes up to a camera on the ceiling. So he was like, you know, just, we're going to go outside and we'll take care of it outside. So she just proceeded to put everything back in the bag, sent us on our way. 
And then we get out there, and he's like, okay, so you're just going to give me the money, and I'm going to take it to her uh, when off the camera. So I was like, okay, no problem. So I gave him 60 bucks to give her, and then I gave him another 20 which I don't know, he may have been splitting that 60 with her. But either way, he got an extra 20 So next time I come down, I'm going to look for that guy. The only thing I'm worried about is that he's going to be like, oh, yeah, now this one's going to get you too. And then she wants $100, and he's going to just start working his way up. But if he does that, then I guess I'll have to figure something else out because right now it's the it's the best thing to do. And um, I think that I think he won't get too greedy. He was real happy to see me, so I'll I'll keep you updated on that. The ride home from the airport when I got in was terrible. I um, there's a guy named Byron who kind of runs a little taxi service in town. He picks me up from the airport, takes me to the airport. It doesn't matter what time of day. Your flight can be at 3 o'clock in the morning. You can leave your house at midnight. It doesn't matter. He'll do it. He's got pretty nice vehicles, so it's always comfortable. But this most recent time, he picked me up, and he said, um, oh, okay, well, you know, the car's over here. So he's, his dad was with him, and he sent his dad to go get the car. And he looked at me. He's like, well, I brought my dad with me because I'm sick, and so I just think it would be best. And I was like, okay, whatever. So in my mind, I'm thinking, why didn't you just send your dad? But anyway, the dad pulls up in the car. We load all our stuff in it. I get in the back seat because half of it was filled with my suitcases, and I would just rather sit next to it than, than some stranger who could go through it. But anyway, I'm sitting back there, and the, they're talking a little bit, not much. But the dad is, well, first we were listening to some awesome 80s radio station, and I was having a great time. And it, keep in mind that I left my house at f- like 4 o'clock in the morning, and by this time, it's like 11 o'clock at night. There was all kinds of screw-ups on my flight in Houston. So anyway, we're headed back to San Juan, and then the dad changes the radio station from this awesome 80s station to like this loud, obnoxious news station. And for those of you that aren't familiar with how like Latin radio stations sound, it is miserable. Like when they, when they, talk, they talk over music a ton, they'll just interrupt a song in the middle of it and just start shouting out the call letters of the radio station. Or they'll start doing a commercial in the middle of a song, and you think, like, is this an accident? Are, are they meaning to do this? But you hear it over and over and over again. And a lot of times when they're doing, like, endorsements, they're always endorsing, like, the city of, you know, San Juan del Sur. And you, they're talking about parties and things that are coming up. But in the background, like, they're talking over loud noises. Like this particular news guy, every, every time he would read the news... There would be a beep, 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 like the old school news wire sound. But it went the entire time that he was talking. And then he would stop talking, and they would do some commercials, and then when he would come back on, the beep, 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 and it was driving me nuts. I really took out my headphones and put them on just so I didn't have to hear that. I don't understand why they think it sounds good, but it is torture to your ears. Speaking of driving and riding in torturous situations, I think I may have the Galloper sold. we got a guy, we've agreed on a price, he's talking to his mom, and we're going to settle it this evening or maybe tomorrow morning. So keep your fingers crossed for that. And speaking of the Galloper, the other day, well I've got two Galloper stories, but when I'd first gotten back, I hopped in it to go to town, and I'm cruising down the road, and all of a sudden... Off the hood flies this hood scoop. It's got like this little hood scoop uh, that, that catches air and blows it to the to the cooler. And 
I'm just driving on the road, and this thing just flies off the hood and goes sailing up in the air. So I pull over, back up, I get it, and I look. I can see where it had been glued on previously, and I'm thinking, well, I guess I'll have to glue it back on. And, and knowing the importance of glue, I brought down some JB Weld. Anyone from Texas knows and appreciates the importance of JB Weld. So I was going to JB Weld it back on, and Ronnie, the, the caretaker, comes out, and he saw what had happened, and he said, hey, I have some uh, silicone. I can silicone it back on. I said, that's fine, but there's not going to be like a white ring around it. He's like, oh, no, 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 I'll put it all underneath. And I said, okay, go for it. So I go inside. I'm getting ready to leave to go somewhere. I'm not exactly sure where, but I was getting ready to go to leave, and I came back out, and he had it all siliconed on there, and I looked at it, and sure enough, a huge white ring around the outside. It looked like the type of silicone that you use to, to like, seal bathtubs. And I walked up, and I scratched my head, and I looked at it, and I go, what is all the white stuff around the outside? And it wasn't like he just didn't clean it off. It was like there's a huge gap there, and he just filled the entire thing with that silicone. And I was like, well, I thought you said there wasn't going to be white there. He goes, you don't like it? And I just looked at him, and I smile, and I go, no, I don't like it. And he's like, okay, we'll take it off. So he took it off, cleaned the whole thing. He, he probably spent 30 minutes fixing it, and then 45 minutes or maybe an hour cleaning it all up. So it was pretty funny. I don't know what he thinks about me, but I wish I could get in those guys' head and see what all they think about me. And then the other night, I was um, driving home. I'd been out, had a couple drinks. I wasn't drunk, but I was um, driving home, and it was late. And I get about halfway home, and all of a sudden, boom, tire blows out. So it's slapping on the fender well, and I pull over just to look at the damage, Luckily, the tire had still had air in it, but the treads had ripped off of the tire, and so they're slapping. So I said, well, I'm just going to keep on driving it until this thing pops. So I get back in, and I'm driving slow, man, like 10 miles an hour. Cars are just flying around me, honking at me. Even though I had my hazards on, they felt the need to, to honk at me. So I turned down the dirt road that I live on. I'm thinking, okay, if I can make it halfway between here and my house, it'll be an easy walk. So I'm going, and then all of a sudden... Maybe 100 yards into the dirt road, I hear loud, and so I knew that the tire popped. Now we're on a flat tire. Well, I knew the tire was ruined because the treads blew off of it. So I said, well, I'm going to keep on driving it. So I limped it home. It was probably about a mile and a half, two miles on a dirt road, and it probably took me 20 minutes to get home, but I made it, and (laughs) I just I pulled up. And Felipe, the nighttime uh, cuidador, caretaker guy, walked up, and he just started laughing at me. He said, man, how many tires have you blown in two months? I said, I think that's four. He just laughed and laughed. So I just left it sitting there. And the next morning, I woke up, and I thought to myself, man, I really hope Ronnie's got that tire changed because I do not want to mess with it. And so sure enough, I opened the front door, and there he is up underneath the galloper, jacked up in the air, got the old tire off, about to slap the new tire on it. I walked up there, gave him a high five, and proceeded to make him a huge breakfast of, I think, uh, pork chop, eggs. I took some uh, potatoes and grated them up and made some hash browns and some pineapple and some coffee, and he was he was stoked. I think he was perfectly fine with the, with that trade-off. But, man, he's he's golden. He's changed four tires so far. Also, when I was gone, I got a message from Jamie who said something about, oh, the moths are terrible in your house. And 
I wasn't exactly sure what she meant. I just thought maybe a couple of moths got in the house or maybe there were some big ones. I was just like, yeah, whatever. You know, didn't really pay much attention to it. Then when I got home that night, I walked in the house. I looked up at the ceiling and in the kitchen, the entire ceiling is covered in moths. And it flipped me out. I was like, oh man, this is so gross. And I mean, normally like one moth or two moths aren't gross, but this whole, it's like moth party 2015 just stuck up on the ceiling. So I was like, oh, man, what am I going to do? So I turned off all the lights, and I turned on the outside lights with the doors open, hoping that they would start moving out there. No, no, no. They had already established the ceiling as their home. So over the course of about the next 10 days, they just kept congregating on the ceiling. And it got to a point where I was so grossed out by it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even go in the kitchen. And in the morning, I would wake up and walk in there, and it would be dead moths all over the floors and all over the countertops. And if they had been there long enough, the ants will find the dead moths and go to them and start eating them. So the entire countertop is filled with dead moths and ants eating them. It was disgusting. I normally, you know, can look past that stuff, but no, no, it it got me. And I even think that they started to smell, like all the moths and dead moths made the kitchen start to smell. So there was about a four or five day window that I completely avoided the kitchen I would walk in like with one eye open and one eye closed to find something to drink and I would get out of there as fast as possible. I didn't cook. I didn't do any dishes. I didn't do anything. I just stayed out. And now that they're, they're back to a manageable number, I could probably walk in there now and there would be like maybe eight on the ceiling. But at one point it was definitely in the hundreds, maybe, maybe thousands. And uh, luckily I figured it was only going to be about a two week to 10 day period. And that's what it was. So they're on their way out. It won't be much longer. But I have a feeling that something else will be next, another plague, a plague of toads or scorpions or geckos or something like that. So I'll, um, I'll keep everyone posted on what the next thing that infests my house is. Oh, one more moth story. I uh, was sitting on the porch drinking coffee, and it was light. It wasn't dark. And I took a, the last swig of the coffee. I felt something in my mouth, and I bit down on it, and I spit it out, and yes. It was a moth. It was a dead moth. I guess it either fell into my coffee cup or it was in there and I didn't see it. But it was at the bottom of the coffee mug and I chewed on it and spit it out. And needless to say, I was done with the coffee. It was, it was a pretty traumatic experience. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. One of the things that I've noticed about driving here is that uh, people tend to not use turn signals a lot of times your brakes don't work. A lot of times your headlights don't work. And so instead of using the arm signals that we use in the States where your arm is directly out the window for a left-hand turn, it's straight up for a right-hand turn, or it's straight down for a stop or slow down, they just will take their hand and start flailing it out the window, just waving it around all kinds of directions, up and down, front to back, left and right. And what that means is, Something is about to happen. (laughs) They're either about to slow down or they're about to turn left or they're about to turn right. But you don't need to know that. I've figured out that that, all the other stuff doesn't matter. Just slow down and and wait for them to do something. So whenever you see the arm like blast out the window, shaking, flailing all over the place, just slow down give them some space. Like I've figured out that it doesn't, I don't need to know whether they're going to go left or go right or slow down. Well, I know that they're going to slow down because they have to slow down to go left or right. So it seems at first like it's a pretty bad system or wow, you can't really tell what they're going to do. But 
after you get used to it, you're like, hey, just slow down. It doesn't matter. They'll figure something out. I thought that was a pretty, um, a pretty cool system that they have. Going back a little bit to the night that I got back here from the States, I pulled up to my house about 1130 at night, and Felipe, who's the nighttime uh, cuidador, is normally sitting in a lawn chair out in front of the little guard shack, or sometimes he'll sit on the back porch, because from the back porch you can see a road coming up to the house. And so sometimes he sits back there. So I pull up with Byron in the taxi. We get all my bags out. We load them inside. Um, I pay Byron. He leaves. I'm like, well, that's kind of strange that Felipe didn't come over here. So I walked over to the little guard shack where he has access to. And uh, the door was wide open. And he had one of those old school uh, lounge lawn chairs from like the 70s that, you know, you like fold the over to the middle all the way and then fold it back and it goes click, 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 click and you just stop it where you want it to get the angle right. So he was laid out in one of those. Head back, mouth open, you know, on his back, all the way horizontal. And he had a machete next to one hand and an old, old, old twenty-two pistol <laughs> in his other hand. But he was out cold. And so I woke him up and I was like, Felipe? Felipe, and he's, huh, 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 huh. He woke up. He's like, oh, hey, how are you doing, Brandon? I'm like, I'm fine, buddy. <laughs> I think he, uh, he, he knew that I had been gone for a long time, and he didn't know that I was coming back. But either way, like somebody could have come and robbed the entire house, and he, he would have never known. But what's funny about Felipe is that the first time I saw him, I, I saw a little white cat that was around whenever he was around. And I thought it was funny because I never saw it during the day. And the little white cat would come in the house at night and I would try to get Bentley to chase it out. And she did a couple times, so it quit coming in the house. But this cat follows Felipe around like it's a dog. And he, wherever he goes, like if he walks across the yard, the cat trails right behind him. It's one of the funniest things I've seen. So when I first noticed it, I asked him, I said, hey, Felipe, what's the cat's name? And he was like, no, the cat doesn't have a name. And I was like, well, where, where is it from? He's like, well, it's from over there. And he kind of pointed at another house up the hill. And I said, oh, it's the owner's cat? And he's like, I don't know. I just saw it come from there. Well, now, well, let me back up. So then I told him, I said, Felipe, you got to name the cat. So I said, tomorrow night, I'm, I'm going to ask you what you named the cat. And he said, okay. So the next day goes by and I ask him, I said, Felipe, what would you name the cat? He's like, Cece. So for whatever reason, he named the cat Cece. I don't know why, but that's the cat's name now. But the cat now follows him on his bicycle all the way home, which is probably about a mile and a half, and all the way back. And I really hope the cat's, like, happily living at his house with him. He's only about 19, 20, 22 maybe at the oldest. But I know for a fact the cat followed him on his bicycle up to the house one day because I, I passed him as he was coming up. I was going down. And I look, he's riding his bike, and the cat is running behind him. <laughs> it's so funny, too, because Nicaraguans don't like cats. They view them almost like raccoons. They like, don't want them around their house. They think they're dirty. They're stinky. They don't have them as pets. So I really hope that Felipe and Cece have a long-lasting relationship that can be a role model for all the Nicaraguans who don't like cats. Yesterday, I went to my first-ever Nicaraguan rodeo. Now, being from Texas, I grew up going to rodeos. And I loved all the different events. And you know, there was always a big concert at the rodeo afterwards. And I remember going as 
you know, a high school age kid and some in college that all my friends wanted to go do is, you know, go to like the little carnival and then hang out at the rodeo, kind of goof off and then see the concert because it was always big name artists after the rodeo. But what I wanted to do was I wanted to do all the carnival stuff. I wanted to eat all the junk food and then I wanted to go and watch the rodeo. And I normally would be happy to leave after the rodeo before the concert starts. So I don't know. I kind of grew up with a, a liking for rodeos. So I got all excited. I saw them building the stands and um, they built them in like two days. So I got with a bunch of friends. I'm like, hey, you guys want to go to the rodeo? And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, we want to go. We want to go. Well, then yesterday, rodeo day comes along. I said, hey, who's up for the rodeo? Everybody backed out. There were supposed to be like six or seven of us going. Everyone backed out. I was, I was kind of upset. But anyway, so I was like, well, I'm still going. So I loaded up in the Galloper, and I went down to the rodeo. It was $4 to get in. And the, the stands were about as rickety as you could imagine. It's just all temporary stuff, but they built a big roof, which covers the stands with corrugated tin uh, for the roof of the, of the cover. And then they also built like a wooden deck with a bunch of just plastic chairs, like banquet chairs. But it wasn't made out of lumber. It was made out of like sticks. Like old, they took like tree, straight trees and cut the limbs off. And those were all the posts and columns that supported this thing. I mean, it was rickety, but it was actually, I mean, some ingenuity. And I was looking at it, how they had cut out the, the posts where they would fit together better. And they would cut flat spots in where they would have a random piece of lumber that needed to mount flush against it. So they wouldn't be nailing against a round portion of the post. And I noticed that all the nails were rusted, which tells me that they were, they, they recycle their nails. So they probably pull this thing down and they put all the nails in a bucket and they pull them out one by one and then they use them again the next year. So talk about making something out of nothing, man. These people did it. They also have chain link fence that goes around and keeps the, keeps the ring separate from the stands. Um, but the rodeo was a sight to behold. There was nothing more than bull riding, and there was a lot more bull taunting than there was bull riding. So the object of the game is to sit on a bull and ride it as long as you can. There's no eight seconds. There's no form. It's just stay on the bull. And there's no winner. It's just stay on the bull. Get drunk, get on the bull, ride it, fall off the bull, repeat it. And so these guys get up there. They got no head protection on, no flak jackets and they just come out of the chute going nuts. And the bulls aren't as big and they're not as strong and they're not as fast as the bulls that I grew up watching. But they will definitely hurt you. So you ride as long as you can. And instead of having rodeo clowns, they have drunk Nicaraguans and drunk gringo backpackers that run in the ring with like uh, big red towels or whatever they can find. And they try to distract the bull away from the rider as he gets away. But... That's typically where it ends, at least in the U.S. rodeo. Nope, they, they don't let the bull out of the ring until they jack with him for like 20 minutes. So there's you know a couple of guys that have the biggest balls of anybody, and they'll run up to the bull, you know, smack it in the middle of the head, run past it, try to get the bull to chase him. And it, it's kind of amusing, but at the same time, it's like, okay, like enough taunting the bull. Like a lot of times the bulls just stand there. They don't, they're not even wild enough to chase the guy. And so the guys escalate it, and they'll, you know, grab a belt and whoop them on their butt. And <laughs> just like, 
I don't know. The the funniest thing that I saw was a drunk gringo that thought he could get in there and do it. And he had like a big towel and he waved it in the bull's face and the bull started chasing him. And it's pretty deep sand. And the guy trips and the bull tramples the guy. Didn't gore him, but he could have easily. Uh, the guy ended up walking off and he was fine, but he didn't get back out there. He was done. So it's, it's pretty funny. They also serve, like they walk around and serve food, like little vendors. And so... I was like, man, I wonder what the typical like rodeo food is here. So I saw one guy that was making these quesadilla things, and I said, I'll try one of these. So all it was was a tortilla with a piece of cheese in it, sautéed onions, and some chili, chili sauce, like Tabasco. And it was like 80 cents. So I was like, yep, I'll have one of those. And it really wasn't that bad. I mean, it was, you know, you can picture the taste, and you'll probably nail it. But uh, I was like, this is like their... This is their rodeo junk food. Like, this is their deep-fried whole pickles and their deep-fried Twinkies. So that was a Nicaraguan rodeo experience. The beer was super cheap and super cold. I think they were 25 or 30 Cordobas, which is just hovering between 90 cents and $1.10. And it was great. There was no lines, no bathrooms. You just walk outside and pee in the ground. All these little pop-up bars... Uh, set up tents around the outside of the rodeo i think the people want to go hang out and party but they don't they can't afford to get into the rodeo so they go there hang out in little tents drink beer get hammered and then i would imagine they get in there and mess with the bulls after everybody leaves <laughs> if i had to guess it's funny too because i i pulled up and i was like man, there's nobody here there's like four cars and then I walk inside, it's jam-packed. And I'm like, oh, yeah, nobody has cars. So I guess everyone just takes the bus there. Uh, but there's definitely lots of drinking and definitely lots of junk food eating. So it's not different than Texas rodeos in a lot of ways, other than the seriousness of the, of the competition. But I'd recommend going if you ever get a chance. I went to one in Costa Rica, I don't know, 10 or so years ago. And it, was, it wasn't too different. It was pretty similar. The one in Costa Rica, though, they tied their feet together below the bull's belly, and they had a, a lash that they could pull and cut some loose. And then they ride with no hands. So feet tied together below the belly, hands up in the air, and as they're getting jostled around, it looks like they're conducting a symphony with both hands. Uh, so that, that, that one to me was more entertaining because the guys would get all sideways and they, they wouldn't ever pull that lash until the absolute last second. But here in Nicaragua, they're not quite as sophisticated. So they just ride with one hand, and when you get tossed, you get tossed. I'd recommend checking it out. It was cool. The last thing I'm going to talk about today is how scared most Nicaraguans are of dogs. It's, it's very funny, and I, I can only assume that it's just because they haven't been exposed to dogs. I mean, in the U.S., I read somewhere the other day that uh, the pet industry, just pet, not counting working dog, is a $53 billion industry. And so everyone is becoming more and more in love with their dogs as time goes on. Well, here, dogs, you know, they'll keep your property safe. They'll bark when people come around. But they're not going to spend money because, in their eyes, dogs are easily replaced. It's just like a tool. Um, you know, they're, they're, they have their purpose, but that's it. Because uh, it's so scarce around here. It's tough. And so... One of the spots that I drive past every day, the guy has six dogs, and they lie in the middle of the road, 
and you have to pull up to them and wait for them to get up before you can drive on past. Sometimes they get kind of on the side or, you know, where you can kind of go around them. But most of the time they get right in the middle. So you drive up to them, you pull up, you stop, and they'll get up and move. And of the six that the guy has, there's two of them that are extremely vicious. And so what I got sick of, you know, every time I would drive by, the vicious dogs would bark and bark and bark. And then Bentley would start barking in the car. And I was just, it was just a bark party and it was too much. So I thought to myself, um, you know, what can I do to keep this dog from barking every time I drive by? So the first time I drove up, I bought a bag of like super cheap chips from the store. I was like, I'm going to try to feed these dogs some chips and see if they'll start eating the chips and associate that with the car. So the first run I went by, and I'm just, you know, when the mean dogs come out and they start barking their faces off, I'm just tossing chips out. Well, that doesn't even phase them. They don't even look at the chips. They're still barking at me. And I know that this is not because they've been trained to not take food from a stranger. This is because they've never had people food, probably. And so they're so involved in barking, they don't realize that the chip's on the ground. Once I finally got past them, they were back to their sniffing around. I looked in the rear view and I saw them eating the chips. So I said, okay, now, that they, now they know what the chips are. So over time, every time I would drive by, I would pull up to them. I would stop. You know, they're, they're barking their faces off. And whenever they stop barking, I would throw the chips out. It only took about four times of that. And then when they saw the car coming, they would just start running towards the car, tails wagging, wanting to get some chips. So if you ever need to get dogs to leave you alone and you follow the same path every day, that'd be the way to do it. But anyway, so people are so scared of dogs on here. It's funny. I was, you know, I walk Bentley and Bronco through the town all the time and they're off leash and they walk right next to me. And sometimes they kind of wander off a little bit, but you always see everyone stand back and jump and look at the dog and draw their hands up and, you know, make the typical, I'm scared of that dog body language. And I, it's so funny because all the street dogs that wander around the streets are very timid. They haven't been socialized. They just kind of wander around. All they want is food. They're not worried about people. They don't want attention. They're scared of people. But I can't figure out why that, like, the people that walk around town are so scared of them because the dogs that are in town don't ever bother anybody. So I don't ever tell people that they're friendly. I just let them figure it out. And most of the time I think they feel silly when they – and they jump back, and Bentley and Bronco just walk past them and absolutely pay zero attention to them. Like, they literally act like they're a lamppost. And so the people see that, and I wonder if they're clicking, if it's making sense in their head, if they're thinking, well, I guess all dogs aren't dangerous. I suspect the answer is no, because I see the same people over and over again. They all jump. They all get scared. Every now and then you have some kids on the beach that want to come up and pet them. And I try to foster that and let them play with them and throw the ball because it's I mean, it's a shame that they don't appreciate dogs the way that we do. So anything I can do to help that, that's, that's what I'll do. But if someone looks sketchy, I tell them, oh, they're very, very mean. Do not, don't touch them. Don't go near them. They will bite you. And so people are sometimes appreciative that I tell them that. I go, okay, thank you. Thanks for the warning. So I get to use my own judgment on who pets the dogs. It's pretty cool. In the States, people just walk up, can I pet your dog? But here, they're a lot more timid because they don't want to get their finger snapped off. So I kind of like that. Okay, I think that's going to wrap up today's show. Uh, thanks again for listening. I know I mentioned that Chris was going to be on. Uh, he had to run out of town for like five days, so I figured I'd go ahead and knock one out. But he's going to be back this week, and I hope to get him on here. 
he said he's got some um, professional basketball player buddies that are going to be coming down with him. So fingers crossed. I hope it all goes well. I know that sitting and doing a podcast isn't exactly the coolest thing to do when you're in a party town. So hope it works out. If not, I know I'll get Chris on here. So stay tuned for that. Uh, check out our website, nikasaleandsurf.com. Shoot me an email, nikasaleandsurf at gmail.com, or check out the blog, brandontheharper.blogspot.com. Thanks again. Keep it tranquilo. Piece of shit car. I got a piece of shit car. That fucking pile of shit. Never gets me very far. My car's a big piece of shit. Cause these shocks are fucking shot. Well, my seatbelt's fucking broken. I got to tie it in a knot. It's a piece of shit. I can't see through the windshield. Cause he's got a big fucking crack. And the interior smells real bad Cause my friend puked in the bed It's a piece of shit Piece of shit car Piece of shit car He got a piece of shit car He sucks royal dick That fucking pile of shit What are you missing? Crap Oh fuck you car It's got no CD player It only got the 8 track Whoever designed my car can lick my sweaty nutsack. Taken by disaster. And I got no fucking brakes. I'm always way out of control. Eleven times a day, I hear, hey, watch it out.